On Wednesday, Nicholas Cruz walked into his former high school in Park City, Florida with an AR-15 and he pulled the fire alarm. And as teenagers began to run out of the school in a panic, to begin to mow them down as though they were playing in a video game. Wearing a shirt, a former shirt from that high school, like a coward. As they began to, to flee, he put down the gun and he ran with them, blending into the crowd, to only be captured later on. You know, we like to believe that we live in an enlightened society. We like to believe that we live in an evolving culture, a culture that is better than it was 50 years ago and better than it was 100 years ago and better than it was 200 years ago. But brothers and sisters, we live in a day in which our children are not safe at school, let alone in the womb of our mother's stomachs. And I'm here to tell you that we do not live in an evolving culture, but in a devolving one. And so, brothers and sisters, the church must stand up. Amen. The church must stand up. And we must stand up not with an imaginary Jesus, not with a Jesus that is made more sanitized and more palatable to the 21st century palate. We must stand up with the, the Jesus of the New Testament. We must stand up with the Jesus of the Gospel. We must stand up with the Jesus of the Bible. We must stand up with the historical, risen Christ, the true Christ, because it is only the true Christ that has any power. It is only the true Christ that is the hope of men, women, boys, and girls. It is only the true Christ that can redeem the culture. It is only the true Christ that can bring revival in our communities. It is only the true Christ that can bring hope into our high schools. It is only the true Christ that can rescue the people at our workplaces. It is only the true Christ with all of his offense, with all of his difficulties, with all of the difficulty of walking against the currents of our culture. It is only the true Christ in which we will find any hope or any power. And so this morning, as we come into Matthew 21 again, we get a glimpse of the true Christ in a way that we aren't used to seeing him. We catch a glimpse of the Christ in a way that is abnormal for us in, the, in our civilized, enlightened culture. We, we catch a glimpse of Christ in, in a way that is, is provocative, uh, offensive even for, for many of us with our educated and refined sensibilities. So I invite, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. Because I propose to you that even as offensive as this Christ may seem, to our day, that it is this very same Christ that is their hope, that it is this very same Christ that can be their joy, that it is this very same Christ that can be their rescuer and their salvation, not just now, but for forever. 
So Matthew chapter 21, we'll begin in verse 12 together. Verse 12. Would you stand with me as we read God's word, God's word together? Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. We'll read through the end of verse 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant and sufficient word this morning. You may be seated. When we come to chapter, when we come to verse 12 of chapter 21, we come to a stunning picture of Jesus, don't we? A Jesus that is out of alignment of much of what we hear of him now, out of alignment of much of what we're taught of him now. We come to uh, what is now referred to in, the, in church history and on the church calendar as Holy Monday of Passion Week. Jesus has come in on Palm Sunday in the triumphant, in, in the triumphant entry as we saw last week. And a night has passed and so it is now Monday of Passover week. And so many pilgrims have made their way into the, the province of Judah, even more specifically Jerusalem proper. Now, the, the pinnacle for every pilgrim of that day, the, the main attraction of what you wanted to see was the temple. Now, you understand the population, I, I compared it to race weekend last week. You remember, like, kind of the way the population expands around here, and that's pretty, pretty close. So, like, the, the population of, of Judah and Jerusalem would be five to six times its normal population. It, it, it increased by the millions during the Passover period. And so the temple was the main attraction. And so if you've ever been to like a marketplace in a third world country when it's kind of prime time and you're kind of having to just kind of walk through like sideways to kind of get through, like have that in your mind. Or you might think of like Black Friday, like shopping the day after Thanksgiving at the exchange and you're kind of nervous for your safety. You know, like like if you're there and you're the last one to get like the, the Robo Elmo or or whatever is the, the big item of the day, or whatever, you know, and it's the last one on the shelf, and you both reach for it at the same time. Like, it's that kind of scene, you know, like, just pandemonium, people everywhere, chaotic. Like, that's the, that's the scene. And so all of this is really centered on the temple. Now, I think when we think temple, we think singular building. But when I say temple, I want you to think temple complex, okay? I want you to think temple complex because that's really important for our scene today. So the temple complex was actually, by the time of Jesus, 33 acres. Herod had built really as a shrine to himself a 
immaculate, even grander than the days of Solomon, a remarkable temple complex that encompassed 33 acres. The, the temple of Jesus' day at its highest point, at its pinnacle, rose more than 400 feet above the valley below. But it, made up, it was made up of a series of gardens or of, of a series of courts. And they, they kind of like got more exclusive as you went in. Like I watched this episode of Frasier and like they were always trying to get the, the most exclusive spot in town. You know, like they had these inner walls. Like you had the gold club of the spa and then the, the platinum club of the spa. And they like always make their, their mission. So kind of have that in your mind, right? So you had the, the Gentile court, which was the outer perimeter. And then you had... The, the court of Israel, which was the next little garden area, which you, if you were a Gentile, you couldn't get into there. And then the next court was the court of prayer. And you had like a side for men and a side for women. And so one side was more exclusive than the other. And then you had the court of priests that was even within that. And then you had obviously the court of the holies, the holy of holies, which, you know, only went into once a year, which was just for the high priest. And so you kind of have all of that in your mind, right? So there's this 33 acre complex and it kind of has the series of gardens, the series of courts that kind of gets more exclusive and smaller until ultimately you're at the temple proper, the building itself, which has all of the things that you're probably more familiar with. Well, our scene today all takes place in the court of the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the least exclusive of the courts. It was the least exclusive of, of, the, uh, of the gardens and it was intended to be so that those who were not ethnic Israel, but wanted to play, pay homage and worship to the God of Israel could come and they could offer sacrifices to him. They could pray to him. They could worship him. They could pledge their allegiance and their devotion to him. And so they would come and they had this, they had a place that was intended for solemn worship and solemn prayer that was made and set aside just for them. And from the majority of the time of the temple, it served just that purpose. But by the time of Jesus, it had really turned into a flea market. So the, the priests of Jesus' day were very corrupt men. And so what they decided that they would do is they would take the court of the Gentiles, which in their mind should not have existed to begin with. They saw it more as a corruption of their religion, not as a beautiful display of the power of their God, but rather a corruption of their worship. And so what they would do is they, they actually authorized the leasing out of, of booths so that merchants could come in and then begin to sell uh, pigeons and bulls and they would have money changers there because they only uh, they would only accept shekels there and so if you were you're were a pilgrim from another land that was under a different currency you could come in and you could exchange your currency you know like if you were going to to Europe like they don't ex accept your you know US dollars there so you got to exchange your currency kind of a similar situation and so you could do all of that on site. It was kind of like the Walmart super center of the day, right? So it's like, how convenient, all of that. Like, and isn't that nice? But do you know what they did? They jacked the prices up. I mean, we're talking like six flags, okay? We're talking like Turner Field, SunTrust Park prices, okay? You know, it's like one of those situations, like you could buy all the stuff just outside the temple gates. You can, in the Mount of Olives, actually, you, you could long buy your, sacrificial, uh, uh, your sacrifices. Because, I mean, think about the guys from Galilee. Like, Jesus has been traveling from Galilee about 25 miles. 
you wouldn't really want to drag your livestock with you. Like, you wouldn't really want to deal with a bull all the way from Galilee, 25 miles, going through multiple towns in a thronging crowd of people dealing with that. Okay, now some people did, all right? Now, but you're dealing with injury. You've got another mouth to feed. You've got, you're going to go slower. You've got to just, I mean, it's just draining. Like, some of y'all have dealt with, like, just walking a dog and how much tireder you can get just walking a dog. Imagine dealing with a bull, all right? Or you got a pigeon, you know, like the, like, like the, 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 the less endowed people would bring a pigeon, which would have been very common in that day. And so you can imagine they're in this, you know, and they're walking and they, they got this pigeon trying to fly or whatever, and they're dealing with all of that. And so it would have been very common in the day to, you would have wanted to be able to get all of that stuff on site. And so it was, so most of the time, all of those things were for sale in the Mount of Olives. And, and you could have bought those things at a fraction of the price, but you know what the priest did? The priest, see, had to evaluate your sacrifice to declare it unblemished and appropriate for worship. And so what they did is they started declaring and finding basically flaws with any sacrifice offered from something that wasn't bought from them. And so they jacked all of their prices way up, declared everything else unfit, and basically had a monopoly on their own enterprise and were extorting people. The Gentiles that they really didn't believe should be worshiping with them to begin with, when they came in and they wanted to worship the God of Judah, what they would do with them is they would set for them a very special price. A price that would be so high that they wouldn't be able to afford it. Or if they were able to afford it, the priest suddenly wouldn't care anymore, right? Because they would be getting that price. And so very literally, by the day of Jesus, it was a den of robbers. It was a den of robbers, a den of thieves, a cave of thieves is the most literal translation. That the house of God, the place of worship, the house of prayer had become a place of extortion, a place in which men were blocking the worship of God by their own selfish enterprise, by their own selfish gain. Priests were using their position to leverage it over people and to hold back the worship of the living God. And Jesus isn't going to have it. And Jesus, the Son of God, isn't going to have it. And so Jesus, having come in with an unashamedly uh, pro pro uh, proclaimed entrance as the Messiah, as the Son of God, goes in on Monday. And he's, it's a crowd that is dense with people, shoulder to shoulder. And so you can imagine that the merchants on that day, they had their best merchandise, right? The, 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 pit, the pins and the cages were full. The money change tables were prepared for an especially large crowd. You've been on Black Friday and you've seen how the shelves are full and the aisles are, are full and there are pallets of, of things that are prepared for an extraordinarily, extraordinarily large number of shoppers. The temple complex would have been no different. And so Jesus walks in on that day and he goes up to where the money changing tables are and he begins to flip all of the tables that he sees. Money and currency begins to go everywhere and you can imagine the metal coins pinging on the ground. 
He begins to open the, the cages and the, and the, the bulls begin to, to run and the livestock begins to escape. He begins to flip over the chairs where the pigeons are and open the cages and they begin to, to fly away. The God of order, the Christ, who in this very moment is holding together the solar system, who in this very moment is holding together the very atomic makeup of you and I, bringing utter and total chaos and pandemonium in the very temple of his Father. And you know what's striking about it? He's one man. He's one man. He's one man in the midst of many. He's one man in the midst of thousands. He's one man, and he's flipping over every table, opening every cage, doing all of this. And who stops him? Who stops him? Which one of the money changers dares to get up and to put an end to this rebel? Which one of the merchants selling the pigeons or selling the bulls stands up to end this little uprising? Not one that we have recorded. Not a single one. There was something about him. There was something about Jesus that said, man, I'm not messing with that guy. I'm not messing with that guy. That guy looks crazy. That there, there's something about him that just tells me I better just back down, pack up my table, and go home for the day. You know, that doesn't really reconcile with our 21st century view of Jesus, does it? That doesn't really reconcile with this, this 21st century long-haired, effeminate, holding a lamb, talking like a hippie view of Jesus, does it? This doesn't really reconcile with this little soft-spoken, talking like a girl, acting like a girl, looking like a girl, Jesus that we have. No, those are all figments of our imagination. Jesus was a man. Jesus was masculine. And when Jesus spoke, people listened. And when Jesus confronted, he meant business. Jesus wasn't a jerk. But Jesus, in righteous indignation, Jesus as a man of authority, Jesus as the greatest example of a man's man that has ever walked the face of the earth, when he exerted his authority, people knew. People respected. People submitted. Even if they didn't know why. You see, it's, it's art over a period of time. See, there, in, in the Middle Ages, we went through this time where we painted uh, feminine features on men, right? And so we softened all these pictures. And then we went through this time in which we painted long hair on people. And so by the time it gets to us, like, we have this picture of Jesus that's just not real. We have this picture of Jesus that's just not real. Jesus would have been a man with, with thick hands and tough feet and broad shoulders he walked everywhere that he went. I told you guys about that last week. He worked for a living with his hands. He built tables. He was a carpenter's son. He lived a hand-to-mouth existence. He would have had short hair as it was offensive in Jesus' day to have, for a man to have shoulder-length hair. That has nothing to do with our culture. That's not, that's not even relevant. It's just 
the picture that we have of Christ. He would have been a, a dark-skinned, Middle Eastern Jewish man, and he would have been a man's man that when he spoke, his family would have listened to him. His society would have listened to him. Does your image of Jesus, does your image of Jesus enable him to flip tables? Does your image of Jesus enable him to be angry? Not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about him being unkind. I'm not talking about him being um, uncouth. I'm not talking about him being a jerk. I'm talking about him being filled with righteous indignation. Does your understanding of who Christ is allow for that? Because brothers and sisters, if it doesn't, you don't have the real Christ. It's a figment of your imagination. It's a creation of your American ideals. You see, what we have to understand, and if our text doesn't teach us anything else, our text teaches us is that while Jesus is willing to forgive anybody, Jesus doesn't tolerate everybody. Jesus is willing to forgive anybody, but Jesus doesn't tolerate everybody. In fact, if our, what our text teaches us is that there is a type of man that Jesus accepts and a type of man that Jesus rejects. There is a type of, of man, a woman, a child that Jesus accepts, and there is a type of man that Jesus rejects. A type of child that Jesus rejects. A type of woman that Jesus rejects. Especially, especially, if you were the type of person that says, I'm going to get while the getting is good. I'm going to live for me while I have the chance. I'm going to do as much for myself as I'm able. I'm going to live for me, and then eventually I'll just skate in to heaven. I'll just skate in to the glory of God. I'll just skate in to the presence of God by the grace of God because God's just going to be good to me. That is the kind of person that God, Jesus is rejecting in Matthew chapter 21. That's exactly who the priests are. It's exactly who the priests are. No. No, the hope that you have is that Jesus is willing to forgive anyone. He would have forgiven every single man on the scene that day. He would have forgiven every money changer. He would have forgiven every merchant. He would have forgiven every priest if they would have bowed down and said, Jesus, I am sorry for turning your house into a den of robbers. Would you forgive me? He would have said, come to me and find rest finally. And they would have found a kindness in him. Remember, he's a real man, right? He's a real man. They would have found a kindness in him, a gentleness in him, a kindness in him, a forgiveness in him, a compassion in him that they had never known before. But walking, walking in their sin, walking in their pride, walking, see, I'm going to get while the getting is good. Jesus flips their table. This morning, what about you? What about you? Are you following the real Christ? Are you following the true Christ? Are you following the Christ who gets angry at sin? Are you following the Christ who was willing to forgive anyone but will not tolerate everyone? 
Are you following the Christ who demands that you turn from your sin and come to him? Are you following the Christ who is not just going to turn a blind eye to sin because he cannot, but instead will say, come to me and find repentance and forgiveness. I want you to notice next the the rebuke that Jesus gives, the specific rebuke that he says. He says in um, verse 13, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. What's unique about this rebuke is that it's actually a combination of two different prophecies. It's actually a combination of two different prophecies, one from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. So the first half, when he says in verse 13, when he says, my my house shall be called a house of prayer, that comes from Isaiah chapter 56. Now, Isaiah chapter 56 is really, really cool, all right? So Mark actually quotes this in a bit more length, and he adds on an extra phrase where he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer of the nations, all right? And that's what Isaiah 56 is about. Isaiah 56 is actually talking about the court of the Gentiles. It's it's where the kind of the birthplace of the court of the Gentiles. And so in Isaiah 56, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, or or what God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, is he's saying that any Gentile, even those that are not born into ethnic Israel, even those that I didn't enter into the original covenant with, if they will pledge their allegiance to me, if they will walk in my ways, if they will love me, if they will pledge themselves to me, I will accept them. I will accept them and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's me and you, y'all. That people from every nation, people from every tribe, people from every tongue. That's not a New Testament idea. That didn't begin with Jesus. That began with God. That began with God. That has began in the original Garden of Eden. God has always been a God of all peoples. And so in Isaiah 56, he is saying, I want to love you. I want you to know me. I want you to know my my power and my passion and my love. And so it's an extension of himself. And so Jesus uses it in a rebuke. And he uses it by saying, he's saying this, you, the people of God, in the temple of God, have become an obstacle to the fulfillment of the word of God. You, as the people of God, you, as priests of God, functioning in the temple of God, have now become obstacles to the worship of God in the fulfillment of God's word. You who God is supposed, you who are supposed to be devoted to the word of God, you who are supposed to be teachers of God's word, you who are supposed to be the ones that God is using to bring the word of God to bear among his people, you are now obstacles to his word. So he goes into the, the second half, right? The second half, he says, but you make it a den of robbers. That comes from Jeremiah chapter seven. And I remember the, 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 from last week, we kind of talked about this relationship between the Galileans and the Judeans. That the Judeans, the, the people that were educated, the, the province of Judah, the, the religious leaders, right? The, those who were kind of the snobbiest about their religious affiliation with the God of Israel. Those were the ones that were having the most difficulty with Jesus. Jeremiah chapter 7 is addressed directly to Judah. It's direct, addressed directly to Judah. And in that, in that warning, the prophet J- uh, Jeremiah looks at them and he's basically saying, do you not understand that being among the people of God is a privilege? And being among the people of God in the house of God is a privilege. And being in the land that God has given you is a privilege. And if you turn your back on God, you will forfeit the privilege. 
If you turn your back on God, God will withdraw his presence from you. God will send you into exile. God will bring hardship and destruction upon your house. And so Jesus is bringing this into their remembrance. And Jesus is telling them, you stand as an obstacle to the worship of God's people. You stand as an obstacle to the worship of the Gentiles. You stand as an obstacle to the fulfillment of God's word. And you will invite the destruction of God upon yourself. You will invite the judgment of God upon you. See, what Jesus had come to do, and what Jesus was demonstrating in the flipping of the tables, is Jesus had come to obliterate all of the obstacles that man had made to God. Jesus had come to obliterate all of the obstacles that man had built that blocked man from getting to God. All of the obstacles, whether it was racial or whether it was cultural or whether it was socioeconomical, all of the obstacles that we are constantly building that keeps us from getting to the Lord, Jesus came and he came to die on the cross so that he might overcome every single one of those obstacles so that we might know personally and individually and collectively the forgiving nature of our Christ, the forgiving nature of our God, by obliterating those obstacles. As I thought about that, I began asking myself, I wonder, if Jesus were to come into Iron City Baptist Church, what tables might he flip? What tables might he flip? What obstacles are we building? What, what obstacles have we created that keeps people from worshiping God? You understand that it is the mission of God for the people of God to increase the worship of God. It is the mission of God for the people of God to increase the worship of God. And so I began to think, like, what kind of, what kind of, what kind of tables might he flip among us? I wonder if for some of us he might come and he might flip our seating arrangement. You know, I used to think that what people wanted was a friendly church, but you know, I think better than that now. People don't want a friendly church. There are lots of friendly churches. People want friends. People want friends. Do you know what? It is an obstacle to worship to come and sit in a church as a stranger. It is an obstacle to worship to come and sit and feel alienated on a row by yourself in the middle of a bunch of people that seem to know each other very well. It is an obstacle to worship, to come in. It's an obstacle to the gospel if it's a, a, a person that doesn't know Christ yet. And they come and they don't, and they, they, don't, they feel completely excluded. They feel like they're on the outside looking in. And look, I know all of us want our church to grow. We want to reach the next generation. We want all of those things. And we're well-intentioned. And you shouldn't feel guilty for having friends. Those are a gift from the Lord. Like, I don't want you to feel guilty from that. But you know what? We've got to be willing to make new friends. We've got to be willing to go to lunch with new people. We've got to be willing to get up from our seats and sit beside new people and talk to new people, not just shake hands, not just in passing glances. I wonder if Jesus might come in and take our seating chart and flip the tables. I wonder, you know, the fastest growing ministry in our church is our children's ministry. I think we have like three or four people pregnant, adopting, probably more than that right now. Like that's how you grow your church, right? Amen. <laughs> I'm praying everybody, every young couple in our church cancels their TV service. <laughs> 
massive growth. Healthier marriages, it's going to be awesome. But you know, the fact, we, we saw a demonstration of that, man. On Wednesday nights, we've got, we've got new couples, uh, brain, we got new kids coming every single Wednesday night to LIT and Nehemiah kids. And I get, I mean, I get excited, I got excited seeing the kids sing and hearing them, man. Like that, they've come a long way in their singing. And if you've been, a, and it's just so much commendation. And you know what we really have growing? And it's so cool because a lot of people are seeing this. We have boys. We've got a lot of boys. But you know what we don't have? Men. We don't have men. We've got men in the church. We don't have men working with our boys. And, and, and y'all know me well enough to know I'm not finger wagging, beat down our men kind of guy. That's not who I am. Because I know, man, y'all are getting up and you're trying to provide for your families and you're trying to be honest men. And most of you are and you're doing all that. Man, man you're good men. I get it. And, 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 I, and I know that you don't want to come home and, you, and you just, you're tired and you worked hard and you're spent. I get it. And, and working with, with boys and, and doing all that is intimidating. You've never done that before and it's scary. You don't really know how you're going to start. And I'm telling you, man, I'm telling you, we won't let you go in that by yourself. We won't let you go in there untrained. We won't let you go in there not having a, I, I know, I get all of that. But I wonder. I wonder if, if, if Jesus might come in and say, look, I've given you boys. I've given you children, and you're an obstacle to them. You're an obstacle to them. I have given you a gift. I have given you another generation. I have given you what so many churches would die to have. I have given it to you. I have brought them to your church. I have given them to you. Will you not train them? Will you not teach them to worship? Will you not teach them to be men of God? Will you not teach them biblical masculinity? Will you not give them an example to follow? Will you not show them a man that runs after God's own heart? Will you not show them? And I wonder if he might go to our men that are sitting on the bench and kick the legs out of the bench and point to the field and say, get in the game, men. Get in the game. I know it's hard, man. I know you got a lot going on. I'd rather you put something else down and work with our boys. I'd rather you do less here and work with our boys. Honestly, if you need to come and tell me, Pastor, I can't do this, this, or this anymore, but I'll work with our boys, I, I'll say amen, and I won't give you any lip. God is my witness. Because we got a generation coming that God has given us. And I refuse to be a church that will be an obstacle of worship and an obstacle of evangelism and an obstacle of discipleship to those boys. The Lord has given them to us. I'm not asking you for a, a lifetime. I'm asking you, give us a year. And then if you're still into it, we'll do it another year and another year and another year. But man, come and get in the game. I wonder what tables Jesus would flip. I wonder what barriers we have built here. You know, in verse 14, though, we have this change of tone in Jesus, don't we? It's stark. It's stark. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Do you see how stark that is? Jesus is flipping tables. There's rage in his eyes, indignation, anger. People are fleeing from his presence. No one dares confront him. And the blind and the lame can't get to him fast enough. Where everyone else sees anger, 
and everyone else sees rage, they see kindness and compassion and acceptance. Remember I told you there's a, there's a type of man that Jesus rejects and a type of man that Jesus accepts, right? And they come and they can't come there fast enough. They were not accepted in the temple, you see. The blind and the lame, they were excluded. They were excluded. They were not worthy of worship. They were seen as unclean and unfit. And they were not accepted on the complex of the temple. They could not even go where the Gentiles could go. And so they were left on the outside of the temple, begging, hoping that those Passover worshipers would throw them a coin and let them eat yet another day. But here, here was Jesus, the man, flipping over tables and opening coins. And he was there. And he was looking as soon as he flipped over tables. And all of those that were, that were begging, was saying, come to me. Come to me, you who are weary. Come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, you who are broken, and I will make you whole. Come to me, you who are sick, and I will make you well. Do you think about, think about what Jesus is doing here? What did Jesus do when he flipped over the tables? He removed obstacles of worship. The Gentiles that weren't able to worship before could now come and worship. Those that were excluded because of the cost of the offerings could now come. What is he doing with those that were blind and lame? He's healing them. They couldn't help the reason they couldn't worship. They couldn't fix the reason that they couldn't worship. But Jesus helped them and Jesus fixed them. Jesus overcame their barrier to worship. Jesus overcame their obstacle to worship. Jesus made them so that they could worship too. Do you see how wonderful Jesus is, brothers and sisters? Do you see how wonderful Jesus is? Let me tell you how wonderful Jesus is. On this day, on this day, 17 years ago, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. On this day, today is my spiritual birthday. And you know what? I was just like the blind and the lame. I was in my sin and I couldn't help it. I was blind to spiritual truth and I couldn't fix it. I was dead in my trespasses and I couldn't make myself alive. But Jesus did. Jesus did. I couldn't get to God the Father by myself. Every time I tried, I only added to my offense. I only added to my self-righteousness. But Jesus, Jesus gave me his righteousness. I was sick and Jesus made me well. I was blind and Jesus made me see. I was lame and Jesus said, pick up your mat, son, and walk. And I was able to walk. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is wonderful. And he's not finished yet. You know what happened last night? One of our teenagers, part of our D now, an eighth grade girl, I celebrated with her about it this morning because we share a spiritual birthday now. At one o'clock this morning, with tears pouring down her face, she went with her friends in the middle of her adult's bedroom and she woke her up. The adult said, I thought somebody in my family had died and she's scared to death. And then she realized what was going on and she said, man, I need Jesus. He's been convicting me for months now and I just want to give my life to Christ. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus took her who couldn't help herself, her who couldn't fix herself and he saved her this morning because Jesus is wonderful. Jesus 
removes the obstacles to the Father. Jesus obliterates all barriers to worship because Jesus is that kind of Savior. And so, brothers and sisters, we can be like the children, or we can be like the priests. The priests come and they accuse, and it says they are indignant. Jesus, will you let them worship you? And Jesus says, yes, I will let them worship me. Yes, out of the mouth of these infants, out of the mouths of these babies comes the truest words that have ever been spoken. Hosanna, save us. Yes, I will let them say it because yes, I will save you. Jesus says, have you not read knowing full well they had read? But you see, reading, it either hardens your heart or it humbles you. Their hearts were as hardened as granite, but not the babies. You see, the irony was the children had never read. The children had never memorized. The children had never studied. But the children saw the truth. And so they declared, Hosanna! Hosanna! Save us! Glory to God in the highest! Glory to God in the highest. And brothers and sisters, I can unashamedly tell you that those little boys and those little girls are celebrating this day with Jesus our Savior. So this morning, who will you be? Perhaps you have read, perhaps you have studied, perhaps you have heard, perhaps you know. But have you submitted to the true Christ? Because he is true and he is wonderful. Let's pray together.